you'll hear this story and you'll also be gaining knowledge when you listen to it on how to do these things. I realized that like my concern was really just what people were going to think of my decision and oh my god she's crazy what is she doing she's not you know she's supposed to be pursuing a career this is when she's supposed to be finding a job and I that doesn't appeal to me that never appealed to me. Play a major role in spreading the love and the joy and uh, reducing our imprint, you know, for for future generations and for all that we share this planet with. I was just embarrassed. I felt like I couldn't do it. Like I'd already failed. I had no idea what I was doing. What did I get myself into? What was I thinking? Our history of humanity really revolves around great people. And that's, that's all we know about. And why is that? It's because the insignificant people weren't important enough that somebody would take the time to document their life. Hello everyone, my name is Kaylin Otto and you are listening to The Unruly Podcast. First of all, thank you so much for being here, like truly. I've noticed when I was looking at the stats for this podcast that I had reached some new countries, some new cities and towns and states, and truly, it makes me so happy, y'all. Like, I can't even describe it. So thank you for lending me your time and energy and brain space because I, I appreciate it so much. Now, a couple updates before we get into today's guest. I'm about to be traveling here. I'll be spending some time in LA and then the UK. So be sure to sign up for the newsletter, which you can find uh, in the show notes of this podcast episode, so that you can see the fun things that I'm doing. You can check out the guides that I put up and any additional travel information. Now, with that being said, for today's episode, I was actually going to release it next month in September. But since I'll be traveling, I wanted to get on this early and put this out into the world because we are having such a much-needed conversation, and I have two amazing guests on today's episode. Today's episode is actually some of the information that's going to be released on my website for September, where we evaluate and examine our relationship with non-human animals around us. And I say non-human animals because we are also animals, you know? They're just not human, but we are all animals. So we're examining our relationship to them when it comes to food, work, entertainment, and things like that. So yes, we will be discussing veganism and be having much-needed conversations around veganism. I have some more really amazing guests lined up to come on and talk about veganism and food justice like Patrice Jones, Robbie Blockie, Bren Hurst. So be sure to keep on listening so you can tune into those incredible conversations. All right, y'all, before we get into today's episode, I have to talk to you about our awesome sponsor, the Peace Advocacy Network. Now, if you listened to the last episode, you kind of heard about them already, what they're all about, what kinds of programs they offer, because I interviewed my friend Mo, who works for them, and during those episodes, it was kind of the kickoff to talking about veganism on the podcast, and we also talked about travel, Kung Fu, and bringing activism to the workplace if it's not already there. So if you want to learn more about PAN, please go back and listen to that episode, but I'm going to tell you a little bit right now too. So PAN is a 501c3 whose mission it is to promote a peaceful existence through veganism, social justice, and respect for the earth. 
so important. PAN's main programs are the Vegan Pledge Program, which is a free 30-day challenge where participants pledge to live a vegan lifestyle for 30 days, and they receive a ton of support from PAN that includes weekly meetings and mentorship. And then they have the Vegan Activist Academy, which is another free program that goes on for 10 weeks, and it includes weekly meetings containing topics that can kickstart or enhance your vegan activism. I wish that these were both around when I was going vegan. These are such incredible free resources that they have put so much time and energy and heart into, so please take advantage for them. You can sign up for these programs at peaceadvocacynetwork.org, and of course, I will put the link to get you connected to all that information, get you started, get you applying for these programs in the show notes. All right, let's get into today's episode. I am here with Sama and Chris, and we are talking about the Atiroa Liberation League. And uh, I am here with two awesome people who do so much important work. So I want to start by having you both introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your background, and what role you play in the Liberation League. Oh, well, first off, thank you so much for having us. Um, you also do a lot of amazing work. So just want to thank you and say that it's an honor to be here speaking to you. Um, so my name is Summer. Uh, I, along with Chris, co-founded Aotearoa Liberation League. Uh, Aotearoa Liberation League is a decolonial justice project that focuses on um, liberation for animal, humans, environment, through a decolonial lens. Um, a little bit about myself. I was born in Iraq and I migrated to Aotearoa about 23, 22 years ago. Uh, I met Chris at a decolonial animal conference. Um, it was called Decolonizing Animals. So, yeah, we obviously had a lot in common from the, from the get-go to be at that conference and that has carried on uh, into our work. Yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, my name is Chris Hootie-White, um, born and raised here in Aotearoa. Um, and Aotearoa is um, the Māori name for New Zealand, for people who are wondering. I, you know, often find people, um, they know a lot about New Zealand, but not a lot about Aotearoa. Um, uh, a little bit about myself. I grew up um, in a rural town a very small town called Otowa. Um, I was homeschooled. Um, I, I've always, from a young age, have had a strong link and connection with animals and the environment. Um, uh, in my teenage years, young adult life, I worked for a Māori health organization, um, got into extreme sports, um, became a vegan, um, and recently uh, created a documentary along with um, the rest of the team uh, about the New Zealand dairy industry. Uh, and when that wrapped up, after the creation of the documentary, um, we started working on Aotearoa Liberation League to try and, I guess, you know, tie all these different things together for people and try and make um, the idea that different forms of oppression um, are interconnected. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for those introductions. I know I've known a little bit about both of you through the different work that you do, but it's so exciting to be able to ask my questions in real time. Mm. And yeah, we're going to be talking about a lot of the work that you do. 
and topics that you cover through that. But I always like to start my podcast with a very silly surprise question um, or one that maybe makes you think a little bit. So I'm going to give you two different questions and you can choose who answers which question or you can just choose whichever one you like better. So to get to know you, either the silly question is, if you were a vegan milkshake, what would be in it? Like, what would the name be? What would be in it? And the second question is, again, you choose which one you like best. If you could take one memory of your life and you got to replay it just once, what would that be? Ooh, you want to go first? Um, you think, okay, I'll, I'll, <laughs> this is fun. You know, I'd probably be a lime milkshake. <laughs> People seem to really have have a thing out against the lime milkshake, and I think it's just like reflective of my personality a bit, I suppose, and kind of always rooting for the underdog. Um, and yeah, I guess it would be a, an oat milk lime milkshake. The name, oof, um, I don't know about that one, um, but a, a memory from my childhood. Uh, every time I think about my childhood, I think about um, the river that was close to my house. Uh, and the name of that river is Mangatawa. Um, and I just spent my childhood down there. Um, I pretty much lived down there. I um, got to know the, the life that was in the river as well. Um, we had like these really big eels. They're called tuna. Um, and in my culture, we see them as kaitiaki, as guardians. Um, and yeah, so I spent a lot of time with them. Um, and I... I'm always going back to that spot every time I revisit home. Um, love that place. Oh, beautiful. Uh, for me, if I could relive a memory, I guess being in Iraq uh, with all of my family and my um, grandmother who has passed away, um, because I will you know, probably not get another chance to be with all of my family ever again. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to relive um, one of those memories of all of us in the same house and eating together. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a special time that I feel like, you yeah, know, when you no. look back on later, you didn't know at that moment it was so special, but when you're in the present moment, you're like, mm. wow. <laughs> mm, yeah. And the older you get, the more you appreciate the, the mm. family times. Yeah. And Chris, I have to follow up with, have you had a lime milkshake before? <laughs> Have I had a lime milkshake before? Of course. They're okay. delicious. They're amazing. Okay. <laughs> I've never had one. We really like, I think here in Aotearoa, I, well, I don't know if it's just us here, but um, mint mint and chocolate is often mm. a, a thing that goes really well together. It's like a like a, a mint ice cream um, with, with dark chocolate is a real common combination. And yeah, and a milkshake. Mm. Oh, that sounds delicious. I've not had... That with lime before, I'm a huge chocolate lover. So next time, I'm gonna I'm gonna do what you suggested. Thank you for that. <laughs> I hope it's good. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I know that y'all um, met at this conference, which sounded amazing, and that I would love to go to. But when was the moment where you're like, we should join forces? and um, speak out about all these different topics, but, like, in our own way. Pretty much uh, as soon as we um, started seeing each other, we knew that uh, we had the same life mission. Um, mm. And so it was just a matter of figuring out how to combine the mission 
and do it together uh, in a way that's sustainable. And yeah, it's it's taking time to figure out a groove to work with someone else, um, definitely. But I think we're getting there. Yeah, when we met, um, I was looking for people to interview for the documentary Milked. Mm. Um, and I saw Samar's presentation um, and I thought, wow, she's an individual that I have to interview and get her insights in terms of her perspective around colonialism uh, and its relationship with animal agriculture. Um, fast forward um, a year or so after that, um, we started seeing each other and yeah, we we love animals, we love veganism, we love justice, we love fighting oppression. Um, it's what we're committing our lives to and so it wasn't really a decision to team up. It was just that's the direction we knew we had to go with. And yeah, and so uh, then just trying to work with each other's strengths um, and creating um, something that um, yeah speaks to both of our passions. I guess for me, I'm probably more coming from um, being an advocate for the environment um, and advocating for veganism. And I felt... Um, Samar, and she'd speak better to this than me, but um, she really helped to tie in more the academic side of things. I feel like I was always more of a like, on-the-ground street activist and kind of disconnected from the more academic realm. And you know, I didn't really know how to talk about these um, different ideologies and whatnot. Um, and yeah, Samar coming in with her experience, um, yeah, just tied in beautifully. Um, I think we complement each other really well. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that in your videos um, and how you talk about different things. And I definitely want to talk about some of those topics that you mentioned. But I want to start with, I wonder how you both came to veganism. Because obviously, you know, you're doing all these work for non-human animals now and the environment and all these different things. But like, what were the roots of when you first heard about veganism and you're like, I'm going to pursue this? Um, so I think my story probably can start a, a little bit before I even heard about veganism because, um, you know, there's always a lot of milestones that plant seeds, right? But I was um, very young when uh, my family would have chickens in our backyard that they would kill um, and have a feast, you know, with everyone. And I remember every single time that that happened, it was really traumatizing for me and I would go in the bedroom and I'd close my ears and I remember seeing one day a chicken moving around with her head chopped off and I was like, that's not cool. Um, and so I refused to eat those chickens. And then uh, another time, you know, as a child I saw a fish and it had, a, you know, they had an eye and I was like, what is that? There's an eyeball. And my family were like, yeah, fish have eyes. And I was like, what? You mean they're alive and stuff? <laughs> um, and they're like, yeah. And so anyway, I, I didn't go vegetarian. I didn't know that was an option. Fast forward to when I was in my 20s and I moved into a vegetarian flat. And that was the first time I came across the idea. I asked the flatmate, why are you all vegetarian? And he just simply said, well, you know, what's the difference between a dog and a cow? <laughs> and for me, that was revolutionary. I was like, what? Yes, you're right. There is no difference. And um, from then, it still took a few steps. Um I was like, oh, I'll only eat home kill because slaughterhouses are bad. And then the next step, I went to a festival called Kiwi Burn. Um, it's like, you know, the Burning Man, but 
New Zealand's edition. And at this festival, one of their weird, creepy rituals is that, because it's on paddocks, it's on a farmland, the mm. farmer gifts animals every single time they have this festival to the festival folks. And they kill them, and then they have this big, weird ceremony around the fire for days where everyone feasts on the flesh of the animals. And they try and make it all spiritual and stuff, but of course they were just bred for animals and there's nothing uh, for food and there's nothing spiritual about it. But anyway, I walk past um, that area and I was like, I saw the butchered cow, but I very visibly saw the the actual cow standing there. Like I I visualized her standing there and being like, Hey, they're going to kill me. You need to stop this. And then I felt even just by being there that I had, somehow condoned this and from that moment I was like I can't eat animals anymore I'm not comfortable with that even if even if they lived the best life ever and were killed in the nicest way um but then the final (laughs) the final thing that happened uh was me driving down the highway and I saw a farmer taking a baby from a cow and she was chasing the truck and I just sort of pulled over and I thought hold on a minute, I consider myself a feminist and I'm drinking the milk from these sad, suffering mothers that had their babies taken from them. I can't justify this anymore. Um, And I decided to go vegan after that. So I think for me, you know, what my story highlights is that it it does need to be quite visual and personal for a lot of people Mm -hmm. that, you know, perhaps seeing a video is not enough. You know, I really had to see a lot of stuff with my own eyes before I clicked. Mm, thanks for, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I also grew up in my family would slaughter chickens and animals that we would eat for dinner. And at a young age, I remember making the connection like you, like, oh my gosh, wait, these are living beings. And I also was like, I'm not eating them anymore. Um, and my family was like, this is the weirdest thing ever, you know? And I remember being outcasted because <laughs> of that. But I remember too, at a young age being like, this is weird. You know, I don't like this and I'm not going to do it. So I'm glad that you, um, you know, followed that voice inside you over the years. It's funny for me, thinking about um, my family, uh, we also killed chickens, but I don't remember us ever, ever eating them. I think mm. we, we wanted to, you know, we had this idea of, you know, romanticizing meat consumption in that way. Um, but those chickens that we killed, they just sat in our freezer <laughs> for years. And uh, I remember myself saying that I wouldn't eat them because animals were my friends. But the rest of my family, I think they liked the idea of eating them, but they just couldn't bring themselves to doing it, which is quite interesting. Wow. Um, so I'm, I'm the youngest in my family, and it was always my job to look after the animals and feed the animals. Um, I grew up on a little lifestyle block. We had cows, chickens, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's like one or two of pretty much every animal you can think of. Um, and yeah, like I, I think I said, I was homeschooled and so I had quite an isolated upbringing as a kid. And so all of my, um, social needs and whatnot were met through, um, our companion animals that I spent a lot of time with. Um, and I had, I guess, quite a traumatic experience when I was about seven years old where, uh, a stray dog got onto our property and killed um, about four of our animals, our rabbit, our guinea pigs, and our cat. 
Um, and I just remember as a young child, you know, questioning things a lot, you know, why were these animals killed? How did, you know, how did we let this happen? We're meant to be guardians of these animals. Mm. Um, and just feeling this, this real sense that I let those animals down. Uh, and ever since then, I've had this um, drive within me to try and protect animals. Um, and so then, you know, fast forward a little bit to us living on this lifestyle block and um, having animals that we wanted to kill for meat. I made the decision when I was about 13 years old to become a vegetarian. Uh, and then I, I think maybe 10 years after that, after learning about also the environmental impact of um, animal agriculture and also just the dominance of the industry in our society, you know, the way that it seeped into our um, uh, into politics, into our education, uh, into our healthcare system, just seeing the way that these industries manipulate our entire society really um, pushed me, <laughs> really ticked me off, I guess. It pissed me off, to be quite honest. I think my veganism is really driven by the fact that I hate manipulation, I hate bullying, and I hate seeing, especially big corporates, take advantage of minority groups. Mm -hmm. And through working for... Uh, the Māori health organization that I was working with, you know, I, uh, we dealt with a lot of um, topics like inequality and obesity and things like that. And I started seeing, of course, places like KFC and McDonald's uh, as industries that were really preying on um, uh, people who lived in low socioeconomic communities. And so, you know, just helped to tie everything together. And mm -hmm. the only response that I could think of um, was to go vegan. Uh, I, I didn't do it just for the animals. It was also about the environment. It was, just, yeah, my way of pushing back against um, the just the might of this industry. I think the deeper people get into veganism, the more they see the interconnections between all these different issues. Mm. I wanted to go back, Sama, to when you saw that cow who was used for dairy and you saw her babies being taken away from her. Because you did a video on desecrating, where you're talking about how dairy desecrates the sacred. And I was wondering if you would talk, speak to that a little bit, relating that to feminism and how you felt when you saw that happen and uh, how we can support non-human mothers and females. Mm, right, yeah. When I saw that, I mean, I fully pulled off, pulled to the side of the road and just cried. It was un deniable that this was a grieving mother when you see it there is no denying you know that the industry can try and say whatever they want but when you see it with your own eyes um you know it's it's black and white the thing with dairy is that it's really about as disrespectful as you can get of the animal themselves you know we're talking about motherhood what could be more sacred than motherhood or the 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 fluid that she creates to feed her child. Reproduction in general it has been one of those things that colonialism has systematically desecrated, not just for animals, but for humans as well. Um, and you see it across the world in the history of colonization. It's one of the first things that they target is women's uh, autonomy over their own reproductive system. So, for example, if you look at the witch hunts, that was one of the biggest kind of tools of colonization. Capitalism was going around and killing the um, knowledge holders in societies. These were often midwives, uh, and they 
helped with contraception and they helped with healing and uh, medicines for their people. You know, in Aotearoa, we had the Tohunga Suppression Act, which can be seen as, as kind of a, a continuation of that witch hunt, which is it was about suppressing the uh, indigenous knowledge, indigenous knowledge of healing and medicine. Um, so, how does this connect to dairy? Yes, well. With, with dairy, it normalizes that exploitation of the reproductive system. It normalizes saying, no, nah, there's nothing sacred about a mother, about mm. childhood, about giving birth, you know, and, and it's about as disrespectful as you can get. The, the baby is taken away from the mother and then the baby's killed and then she's hooked up to a machine to take her breast milk and then all that milk is combined with all the others milk, uh, all other cow's milk um, as one big mass product at completely removing it from the individual themselves. Mm -hmm. And the, the word cow itself, the definition of the word cow, not only does it mean a, a female bovine animal, it also is an insult used against women, mm -hmm. uh, and it also means to oppress someone into submission. So, for example, to cow someone into silence. So we can see that these ideas of oppressing animals developed very closely with our ideas of oppressing people and uh, women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for making that, that beautiful connection. I feel like there are so many people who maybe they aren't mothers themselves, but they feel very strongly about how other females are treated, how about mothers are treated. Somehow the dairy industry has managed to creep into my everyday life and, and haunt me in every single way. So I, I really hope that people, you know, can see that from that point of view that you're saying and make that connection and, and choose to respect motherhood, you know, even when it's non-human animals. Yeah, and I, and I just want to add as well um, that it's also desecrating the land that those cows are kept on. And, and we know that... Uh, the land is sacred as well, and, and the waterway, you know, what could be more sacred than, than the waterways? And we, in Aotearoa is a perfect example, the vast majority of our waterways are unswimmable, primarily because of the dairy industry. Mm -hmm. So you can see, you know, at the heart of it, it is coming from that deep disrespect for Mother Nature, uh, which for me is kind of a cornerstone of colonization. Yeah. Mm. It's just like an attack on the feminine in every way. Yeah, in every way, in, in literally every way possible. I just wanted to say, I just wanted to say as well, it's it has this perverse nature as well because we're using it to replace human breast milk in a lot of circumstances, and so it's also desecrating motherhood in that sense. Um, and and now we have this giant industry that's convincing mothers, you know, to stop breastfeeding and to get their babies on formula instead, which is causing um, you know incredible suffering in third world countries in particular. Um, mixing, of course, their you know unsanitized drinking water um, with the formula, giving it to their babies, and then their babies are having all sorts of illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's it's that perverse nature of trying to replace such a beautiful thing, human breast milk, um, with this industry that's been created to produce a profit for individuals rather than the benefit of the collective. Yeah, and in that way. Would you say, because I remember I was watching your video where you spoke to this a little bit and you were saying by desecrating the sacredness of motherhood, you know, through the dairy industry, we're also disrespecting ourselves. Would you say that's because we are so connected to nature? You know, we are animals too and we're connected to the waterways and we rely on those. 
Or are there other ways that you see it as disrespectful to ourselves? Both, both. There is that um, deeply interconnected nature of the universe. You know, Martin Luther King said it, that, that whatever hurts anyone directly hurts everyone indirectly. Mm-hmm. You know, just our very spirituality, what is happening to our collective psychology and spirituality, this mass exploitation of the feminine, you know, on such a giant scale, that is affecting us in really deep ways that can't really be articulated, but there are also practical ways that it affects us. Like, for example, what what Chris was talking about, the UN recently released a document that said that formula companies were using aggressive and misleading information to target vulnerable parents into buying formula mm-hmm. um, and and also earlier on they convinced mothers that formula was better than breast milk because they wanted them to have more babies and breastfeeding is a natural contraceptive that indigenous women used so mm-hmm. so yes both yeah and staying on the subject of the dairy industry for a moment longer I know that you both worked on the film uh, milked and I was wondering if there was anything that surprised you when you were working on this film, like something new that you learned that you didn't expect that you would come across. I wouldn't say something new, but just something that was really highlighted for me was the fact that the system doesn't work for anybody. Uh, And so, of course, we understand the stress on the environment and um, to cows, of course, but um, the fact that our farmers, um, they're really lacking industry leadership. Um, you know, generally, the farmers that I know, they love their land, uh, and it's it's a legacy thing for them as well. They want to pass their farm on to their to their children. Um, but because of, I would say, the lack of industry leadership, um, they're really being led down a doomed pathway of intensifying their farm to a point where it's just incredibly unsustainable. And for many farmers, most likely what they're going to end up doing is selling to larger corporates who even have less connection with the land. Uh, and less um, desire to protect the land. So we're in a really difficult position, and I think this is happening all over the world at the moment, um, where farms um, are being taken out of um, the hands of farmers and put into these um, more larger corporate entities. And so uh, one thing that I try to communicate, um, particularly particularly to vegans, is that we really need to be supporting our dairy farmers into alternative systems. Uh, we need to be finding solutions that bring them along with us um, because if we're not bringing them along with us, then there is a chance that we're going to make things uh, actually worse. And, and, and it's just common sense, um, simple you know, humanity of trying to find something that works for everybody. We really need to get out of our vegan bubble, um, start connecting with the people that are actually making our food uh, and trying to find something that works for all of us. I, I know that that was one of the... Um, highlights of Milk was talking about how this type of farming is also hurting the farmers. Um, And I've also watched Mm. you do a couple different discussions that seem to turn more into debates with people working in the dairy industry. But have you, since the the film has been out, connected with dairy farmers to sit down and talk about possible solutions for the future? It's tricky. It is really tricky. Um, it's a really sensitive topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that a lot of farmers have seen the film, um, but whether they're ready or willing to engage with the topic is kind of a different subject. Like, It hasn't created the local splash um, that we hoped it would. 
Um, but what the film has done, it's, it's helped me to connect with um, especially experts and advocates from within the space that really want to achieve some positive change and also with a lot of um, farmers um, who are at least thinking about this and know that something is going on, um, but even they are not sure um, what the solution is. So, uh, yeah, it hasn't created the splash that we wanted, but it's definitely created a few pathways um, for us to dig a little bit deeper. And, the, you know, the sad thing is is that farmers are getting misinformation from almost every direction. And so when they see us, they think we're lying mm. about the harms of the industry. They're receiving misinformation from fertilizer companies, misinformation from industry leaders, and misinformation from the government. Because, for example, in Aotearoa, our government spends billions of dollars, billions of dollars on the dairy industry, but none of that money is being allocated towards any actual meaningful change they're just digging their heels in and so farmers are getting all this information of like oh look at all these regulations the government is doing look at all this action look at all this amazing work that you know the industry co constantly tells them they're the most efficient producers of dairy in the world a complete lie by the way uh and so they don't really believe us and that can be squarely put on corporations and the government they're told that we're feeding the world. Mm -hmm. And so even if they do uh, connect with those issues, um, yeah, they're told that they have to do this, that it's, it's for the greater good, um, that without doing this, um, people are going to starve. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, here in Aotearoa, a lot of the dairy products, I'm told the majority, uh, is turned into junk food products. It gets processed into milk powder and then, you know, it's put into like Mars bars and powdering on like potato chips and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, there is that disconnect um, and we need to try and help them um, to, to, to build a system. Like we need localized food production. We need, a, we, need, we need a circular economy. We're relying on this volatile, globalized food system which has inefficiency issues across the board. Um, but yeah, that's just that's just the way capitalism capitalism has has ruled uh, for so long. Um, we have an export economy here in Aotearoa, and everyone wants to be you know in that upper um, ten percent. So you know everyone goes into debt, they take out loans to try and upscale, upsize their systems. Um, but yeah, we need to start humbling ourselves. Um, we need to move um, to more communal models, focus on community resilience, um, food sovereignty. Mm -hmm. uh, for smaller communities and to have um, more relationships um, with our food producers. That's the problem. The consumer is completely disconnected from the producer. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's just classic capitalism. Yeah, yeah and, and on that point, you know, the constant demonization of farmers, I don't think that that's helping. It's, it's creating that separation between farmers and people, which is pushing us even further away from that dream of working with them for lo local food production. You know, what we should be doing is working with those farmers to help them transform into something and, and telling them, hey, we're going to buy your food. We will buy all of your produce. We will make sure that you and your family thrive. Um, but instead, you know, we're demonizing them, and I think it's the wrong target. Yeah. And what practical ways could you tell an individual to start supporting a more localized food system? Because, yeah, there's – it's – it can seem like really up here for a lot of people, but there are ways to kind of bring it down into reality. So I'm wondering if you have tips for anyone listening who's like 
yes, I hear what you're saying, and I want a more localized food system, and I want to know where my food's coming from. What can those people do? Well, yeah, back to basics, I guess. We need to go to our local farmers' markets. Um, if you can, if you have access in your backyard, to start a garden yourself. If you've got excess produce as well, it's a great way of connecting with other food producers. Um, but yeah, going to those local food markets. If you are going to a supermarket, make sure you're looking at country of origin, buying local. Um, but I would say, yeah, it's a it's about us and our communities, even with our neighbours, simply becoming more connected and finding ways to feed each other and using what resources we have, let's say it's in our back garden, uh, and using those resources to feed each other and creating those networks between all of us to start actually talking about our food. Um, we don't, as, as communities, you know, as communities, we don't really talk about um, where the bulk of our food is coming from. That's, that's a conversation for the supermarkets to have. So just the more that we actually make food, food production and food systems um, part of how we interact with each other uh, is really important. And then, of course, the next level goes up is um, staying politically mindful uh, and staying up to date in terms of laws and legislation that's being passed, um, which does affect our local food producers. In Aotearoa, we're lucky because we have examples of non-violent resistance. Uh, for example, Parihaka, which was a self-sustaining community uh, who grew their own food, uh, you know, grew their own, uh, built their own houses, etc. Uh, those are kind of the ultimate model that we need to be aiming towards. And this is not something, you know, practical that everyone can do right now, but it is something that we need to start imagining and talking about. For sure. And, and thank you for mentioning that. I feel like I have been learning more about that over the years, um, getting to move into a house that my partner built and, you know, he gardens. So we get a lot of our food from the garden and, you know, he's huge on all of that. So I've been learning a lot more about that. Um, so for people who are listening, I do have some resources on um, natural buildings, off-grid living, and we're getting into some more resources about gardening. So I'll definitely put some links show notes for people who are interested. I have a, another topic that I wanted to talk to you about that still includes veganism, but a lot of people think that veganism is a white thing, it's a white concept, and that at the same time, it's also anti-indigenous. So could you speak to this and uh, your thoughts around this? Where to start? I mean, well, <laughs> at the core of it, veganism is about peace, you know, it's about nonviolence. And I think when, when we, especially when we look at indigenous cultures, those who are really, really connected with the land, um, they, they, they exude peace more than any other um, culture or, you know, civilization. And uh, I, I think modern day veganism, the way that we all live in the modern world and having to rely on industrialized food systems, the closest we can get um, to, to living in that more indigenous way connected with the land um, is, is to be eating um, plant-based foods. Uh, it's as simple as that for me. You know, for me, going into the supermarket and buying plant-based foods uh, is, a, is, a, is more aligned with me and my indigeneity uh, than buying um, animal products that we know are, are incredibly uh, more harmful to the environment, the very thing that we're all trying to connect more with. Um, but in terms of more originating aspects of nonviolence, someone can probably speak to it better. Yeah, it's a very frustrating one, this one, 
yeah. for me uh, because you get it from both sides, right? You get it from within the vegan community that is, you know, when we're talking about the Western vegan community, it has the same issues as any other, uh, you know, any other community in, in the Western world. You have issues of racism or sexism. That's just normal because we exist in this racist, sexist society. Uh, so from within the vegan community, often you do get non-white vegan voices that are erased, but even more so you get it from the non-vegan community. They constantly uplift and center white vegan voices, and then they say that there are no non-white vegan voices. So there's this double erasure that's happening. Of course non-white vegans exist. You know, actually in, in America, black Americans are the fastest growing vegan population there. And, and I think we're going to see that around the world, actually, as time comes. Um, but of course, as well, when you look at the history of veganism, you know, the idea of nonviolence towards all living things has been discussed for thousands of years, uh, you know, in ancient India, for example. But also a thousand years ago, the first vegan poem was ever written by a Syrian man, a blind man, uh, who was extremely radical in all respects. And, you know, in that poem, he even notes honey should not be stolen from bees who industrially uh, create it for their communities. So, so that's a totally false idea. It further marginalizes non-white people. I get where it's coming from for some people who are afraid of losing more of their indigenous culture. And, you know, eating animals is seen as a big part of indigenous culture. But I think it, that that anxiety is misplaced because actually animal agriculture doesn't resemble subsistence hunting at all. Uh, in Aotearoa, there was no animal farming. And actually, you'll find that across a lot of indigenous cultures, that while hunting was a thing, farming, breeding animals, certainly slaughterhouses, were a, colo uh, a colonial construct, you know, and, and selective breeding, a colonial construct, you know. Mm -hmm. These ideas of manipulating animals, of slaughtering them, of putting them in factory farms, that's about as colonial as you can get in terms of that disconnect from nature. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, another layer on it that is that actually eating animals is not the cornerstone of indigenous cultures. And I even find that a little bit problematic to say that, you know, that's the main thing about indigenous cultures. I often think about what aspects of indigenous cultures are allowed to live and what aren't. And, when you see this hyper-focus on violence as a part of indigenous culture, it does make me question that. You know, like, for example, for Maori, they were masterful, are, sorry, masterful gardeners, um, although there was no animal agriculture. Incredible, amazing gardens. And, you know, I think it could be equally said that gardening is a part of Maori culture. Um, so, you know, it, it does worry me what parts of indigenous cultures that we focus on. Yeah, there's obvious, there's a focus on, you know, this kind of warrior, hunter aspect. When we look back at our ancestors, you know, when we think about cavemen, we normally envision them with like a spear or something and like dragging some kind of wildebeest. Um, it's, you know, it's, a, it's just a memory or it could even be a made up, you know, picture of the past. And because reality these days everything's so confusing we try we're trying to simplify things and, and go back to what our ancestors did um, but you know the only part of that time that we're able to look to or imagine um, is around hunting um, and just just as summer has mentioned you know gardening of course was a huge 
of, of huge importance to indigenous cultures. Um, yet everyone wants to focus on the hunt, the hunting aspect um, rather than those more uh, peaceful, in touch with um, the natural world aspects, such as getting your hands in the soil, you know, it's like all people can imagine is like getting their hands around the neck of an animal instead of, you know, the beautiful aspects of, of, um, of um, horticulture. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I can understand why people take it to that space. Um, but, yeah, we, we think it's a bit uh, misguided or is lacking um, a more holistic view of our ancestors and their ways. Yeah, thank, thank you for sharing that. Is there anything else that you would add, like to add about the specific role that animal agriculture plays in colonization? Oof, yeah. You want to start? Sure, yeah, that's a, that could, could, could take a, a long time. Um, we mentioned the sort of colonizing of people's diets. We touched on it when it comes to dairy. And, of course, that, that's true for all animal products. You know, everywhere you see that this global food system has imported these Western ideologies of what, what food is, you've seen the health decline of those people. Uh, and this is an ongoing process. You know, often with these animal industries in Aotearoa, for example, they're like, oh, our fastest growing population is in this poor country. You know, they say it with pride. Mm-hmm. But really what that means is you're destroying their cultural diet and you're importing these diseases. Um, and speaking of diseases, diseases were one of the most destructive parts of colonization all around the world. They killed so many indigenous people and the vast, vast, vast majority of these diseases came from animal agriculture, from that close proximity with animals in, in very unsanitary, unhealthy conditions. Um, it, you know, the list of, the, and then this is a continuing problem as well, as we're seeing with COVID and monkeypox and these, well, well they will keep coming up, you know, like every week that I'm seeing a new disease that's come out of a factory farm and, you know, we had it with the influenza virus. It was, you know, the deadliest virus in history. And, of course, it came from uh, farming birds. Uh, and we keep doing it. You know, our factory farms are getting grosser and grosser. And, and, and we're going to keep seeing these pandemics come out from them. Uh, so there's that aspect. Um, going back to the colonization of Aotearoa, uh, as with many other places, it was a driving force of colonization because everyone was seeking this capitalist dream of owning their own privately owned farm. Actually, that's where the word colony came from. It used to mean farm, and it became to mean settled farm. Um, Because if everyone owns their own private plot of land to do their animal agriculture on, very quickly you're going to run out of land in your country, and you're going to need to seek out other lands to do that. And Aotearoa uh, is a perfect example of this. There's so much historical records of colonizers saying that um, Aotearoa's climate and soil is perfect for animal agriculture. They stole land, they deforested it, they destroyed the waterways in order to uh, create the system. And now it covers half of our land in Aotearoa, land that Māori continue to be largely alienated from. Now it's like locked into those private hands and getting it back is going to be very, very, very hard. Yeah, and you know it's it's inherently unsustainable. And so, for the dairy industry here in Aotearoa, we're having to take resources from other countries. So, uh, our land here has been colonised largely to spread animal agriculture, and then because of its nature of uh, being so unsustainable, we're having to further, you know, I guess, imperialise and colonise 
other other countries for their resources mm-hmm. to use here and then to export our products to colonize the diets of other peoples, particularly in third world countries. And so there's just too many layers. I, mm-hmm. I cannot think of anything more colonial than animal agriculture. And I think it also um, has its connection with us trying to uh, emulate indigenous cultures because we do have that hyper-focus on eating meat. Mm-hmm. And I think people think through farming animals and through continuing our ability to consume meat, um, that is one of the ways that we try and hold on to what we believe is um, practices of our ancestors. But of course, it's completely different from the way that they operated. And, and, and another layer of it as well is that they erase pre-colonial history, right? So animal agriculture and Aotearoa are constantly saying this is natural, this belongs to this land, that this has always been here. That's the implication. And when you do that, you're erasing pre-colonial culture. You're erasing how much devastation of the colonial of the pre-colonial culture occurred to make this happen by normalizing it right once you start telling the stories of how these farms were implemented it does change how people view it you know it's not sort of part of the landscape anymore they start remembering actually there was forest there where there's grass now you know yeah yeah that's a that's a powerful practice to do which I often find myself doing here also in North Carolina because we have, you know, one old grove forest here, but just one, and it's just one little bit. And so now I find myself when I'm out in nature trying to imagine what the land was like, you know, before farms took over and colonization, all all of these different things. So um, that's, I think, definitely a powerful practice too for anyone to do, you know, trying to remember what the land looked like before. And... I think you know when we when we do that practice of trying to imagine what the land looked like before, uh, we get trapped in thinking that it can only exist in the past. But mm-hmm. for everyone who's looked into, you know, the efficiency benefits of a plant-based diet, um, you know, what are the around three quarters of our land is used for animal agriculture, but that's only giving us about eighteen percent of our caloric of our global caloric need, um, and so. There's huge efficiency gains moving, you know, in terms of our society towards a plant-based diet, and um, the the aspiration, the ultimate dream, of course, would be all of the land that we get back through converting animal agriculture to plant-based production, um, is that we'd be able to rewild a lot of that space. We'd be able to bring a lot of our trees, a lot of our um, native ecosystems, um, back. It's not something that needs to stay in the past. It's just about changing our habits. Yeah, and another thing that can't be understated is the spiritual change that mm. has caused around the world. This deep disconnect from nature and from you know res- our respect for our animal siblings that uh, ripples into every aspect of our society. You know, if we believe that this is an okay thing to do, it means our moral compass is skewed in general. So I think that it has colonized our spirituality as well as Mm. our landscapes yeah thank you thank you for making those points um especially chris when you said like it doesn't have to stay in the past my mind was like Mm -hmm. yeah wow it doesn't have to stay in the past which i think so many of us in these different movements are fighting for but i forget that that could actually be a reality i always think these things are going to maybe happen one day when I'm gone. You know, I'm not going to get to see 
I'm not going to get to see this rewilded, but I mean, that's the, that's, that's what we're working towards. And so I think it's powerful to remember that it's possible. Yeah. We, we might not see it in its um, grandness, but we'll probably see it in its in-between stage, you know, like not when there's the long uh, dreamy hair, you know, when you're growing your hair out, we're going to see it in its more like, awkward middle stage, but, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's going to, it's going to be a long, hard road, but I think, you know, we often think it's, it's, it's just something that existed in the past, but mother nature is beautiful and she's going to uh, express herself in many different ways once we are gone. And I definitely believe that the forests that once covered the vast majority of this planet uh, will come back. It's just about us changing our habits, changing our, our way of um, viewing this planet and our relationship to her. I'm wondering if there is any other messages that you would like to leave listeners with, whether it's um, advice on what they can do to participate in this future that they want or everything's rewilded, or just anything that has been on your mind that you would like to share. Yeah, I mean, we just we need more fluidity, eh? Everything is, um, you know, the system hates a rebel. <laughs> the system yeah. wants us all to be really predictable so that it can manipulate us and yeah. slot us into uh, exactly where they want us. So, yeah, I just like to encourage everybody to keep being their beautiful, unique, individual selves. Um, and also, um, you know, just to speak again to veganism, um, it gets a bad rap at times, um, but at the core heart of veganism um, it's just about trying to do our best it's about peace and nonviolence. and often I find a lot of people you know they blame like uh, green capitalism the green capitalist version of veganism but I would say you know that that really doesn't represent the actual core values of veganism which is simply trying to find um, loving ways of interacting with others um, and yeah so for all my vegans out there I understand the struggle. I know, I know what you're going through. Um, just, yeah, keep being your beautiful selves. Make the world a better place by leaving things better than I found it. You know, whether it be people or the planet or, you know, all kinds of things. Isn't there a quote that says, feel fear and do it anyways? Yeah. 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 So I think for us, insignificance... We have to do it ourselves. A lot of people are doing things in their life that they're not completely happy with. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it just because, you know, it's a norm and they feel like they feel pressured by society. Definitely. Or they're just, you know, stuck in this rut. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ruts can be comfortable for people. And they can be very comfortable. Comfort is not how you how you grow as a person. <laughs>